Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about the film Weeds on Fire and uh, some perhaps uh, unethical practices regarding a student crew. Also, the zombie film Train to Busan is uh, kicking butt and taking names. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we've got our film review for this week, the new film from Benny Chan, Call of Heroes. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to you from his news desk on the back of a horse called Taiping is Mr. Kevin Ma. Do, 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 do. Hey, hey there, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking Magnificent Seven because we talk about the horse in, in the film we're talking about this week, so I just thought about that mm, yes. scene, you know. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, I guess that's better than the horse in uh, Cat Baloo, right? Have you ever seen that film? No, but I'm thinking probably better than horse in uh, Bodyguards and Assassin. If you remember? Oh, now see, that's an awesome horse, right? That that that, that, that that horse is a uh, kicking butt, dude. That horse took on Donnie, and the horse lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or the horse in um, uh, what was the Lao Chima movie last year, right? Uh, also, oh, the Vanished horse. Murderer. Uh, the Vanished Murderer, yeah. Yeah, that was a cool horse. So. Um, for those who are not in the know, though, if you've never seen Cat Ballou, um Lee Marvin and uh, Jane Fonda, kind of an old Western comedy, and uh, Lee Marvin has this horse that I'm not sure how they did it because, you know, it's an older film back in the day, but they get in, in into some like these lazy leaning positions. And I think at one point he drinks like a bottle of whiskey, the horse does, and he gets drunk and the horse can actually kind of act inebriated. So he was kind of the show stealer. From that film, as I recall. But we have an equally interesting horse in this week's film named Tai Ping. So uh, that is the reference. We'll be talking about that a little bit later when we get to our film, uh, Call of Heroes. But uh, before that, uh, how are you doing, sir? I mean, we're, you know, it's starting to cool off a little bit. Uh, we're kind of like leaving summer and slowly approaching into fall. Um, I was I was on the web today, you know, speaking of fall, and looking at all the new television shows that are getting ready to start for the fall season. One thing that I did notice, a lot of TV shows based on movies. I mean, a lot. Like, you've got a Lethal Weapon TV show that's starting, uh, an Exorcist TV show. There's a TV show based on the movie Frequency that's starting. Um, it, it seems like television is now just cop, you know, copying movies. It used to be the other way around, right? Well, it seems like I just read before I came home that they're also developing a um, uh, a, ser- a series based on Departed, I think, and uh, the Rush Hour series already came and gone already. Yeah, I that, think that, is this canceled? That canceled. Yeah, that bombed. Right, right, right. So, so yeah, no, you're right. It seems like we're getting a. I I don't know. I mean, is this the the way that it is what we call IP? I mean, it's a big word these days, right? China and IP, you know, kind of franchising, right? Um, I, I guess that's sort of a, 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 a um, the new trend. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Although for me, it just, I don't know, it just kind of stings of lack of 
original thinking anymore. I, don't, I guess they just want to go with properties they think at one time were popular and, and made money and just try to do a reinterpretation of them, right? Well, it's kind of, that's kind of ironic because, you know, everyone says TV is like the new frontier. Right? Actually, it gets kind of two ends of a spectrum, right? You get really some of the most create, creative people working in TV these days, right? right? Some of the really stuff you don't even see in films. And yet on the other end, you see really just sort of that clear vacuum of like lack of creativity happening in other writers' rooms. And I, I kind of find it funny. To, uh, is there such a thing as a middle ground these days? Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, you know, you just, uh, I mean, there's some, there's definitely some interesting stuff that's kind of happening on the mo non-mainstream channels, you know, in the West. Um, and we've talked about a lot of that stuff before. And that seems to be the place of interest for the most part. But, uh, you know, a lot of these things, you know, The Exorcist is going to be on Fox. Um, what's the other one? Uh, Lethal Weapons also on Fox. Uh, frequencies on the CW. Uh, okay, frequency. I actually would like to see frequency. Is a kick-ass movie. Yeah, but is it is it enough that you want to see it as a you know a, a, a twenty-six episode series or if you know it's a half season, a thirteen episode series? That, that just seems like a gimmick that's going to be a stretch, right? Yeah, I don't know how they're going to write themselves beyond one season with that with that story. Yeah. Well, why don't we stop talking about TV and movies that have become TV and talk uh, about some movie news. So let me throw the talking stick back at Kevin with this week's news. Here at the news desk, um, sort of two discussion. Well, one discussion topic and, and the news thing. But I think we may start with the news thing first. Um, so there's a Korean film named Train to Busan. I don't know if, if you guys heard of it. I think you've heard of it, Paul, for sure. We talked about it before. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. So it does the zombies on a train movie that's coming out of Korea. It was a huge hit in Korea. Um, and it, it, it got a lot of great critical work at Cannes. Um, and um, it's done really, really great business in Singapore as well. It, it quickly became like the highest grossing film in Singapore within a week. And now it's set to open in Hong Kong this week. And uh, the, the 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 distributor Echo has been releasing has been showing the film uh, with paid preview screenings for the past four weekends and it has been like packed for the last four weekends. Um, in fact, I think on one day I heard that the film was actually the top film of the day, beating the new films, beating Call of Heroes, beating Suicide Squad. So that means this is going to be huge. This movie is getting released on forty screens. It's getting a Hollywood. Hollywood scale release, which I've never actually haven't seen that happen to a Korean film here in a long time. Korean films um, in Hong Kong was uh, sort of a trend for a while. You had, you know, you had your Sassy Girl, you had, you know, Christmas in August, and you had the early sort of pack of Korean films. But the the most successful Korean film to date is My Sassy Girl, and actually that record um, was set at about 13 or 14 million Hong Kong dollars, which is not a lot. If you think about it, considering that, um, for example, the top-grossing um, film, Japanese film last year, was fifty million. That was Doraemon, the Doraemon film that made fifty million. So fourteen million doesn't really sound like much, but it seems like Train to Busan is going to be beating that record very, very quickly. Um, the scale of this release, and I think that's amazing. I have no idea how that happened. Um, and it's good. It's 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 entertaining. It's um it's a good zombie film, um and it sort of shows what sort of how Korea has really surpassed really the rest of Asia in terms of commercial filmmaking. Uh, and but I'm really surprised because like I said, Korean films generally don't 
do that well here in Hong Kong. You put a K-pop idol in the film, and it still wouldn't do that well. You can put, you know, have a film by Park Chan Wook, you know, world famous Cannes director, maybe two three million, right? The host, I think, also only made maybe one million. Um, so I'm really quite surprised at this. Yeah, and it one of the things that makes me curious is why the sudden fervor. It's not like zombie movies themselves are. Um, super popular here. I mean, I, I they do show The Walking Dead over here on uh, you know HBO Asia. So is it is it because of the buzz coming out of screenings from Korea and other parts of Asia? Is it because of the cast? Is it because of uh, some secret zombie virus that they've injected moviegoers with to make them <laughs> want to see this movie? I, I think it's definitely not the cast because, like I said, you put a K-pop idol in there, and K-pop is big here, um, and and it doesn't matter. I mean, K-pop, even K-pop idol films don't do well here in Hong Kong. So um, I think part of it is the 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 the, the idea, you know, trains every day for us is a big part of our lives, and zombie films have you know been popular for the last several years, but um, the genre kind of could use sort of a, a breakthrough, and it seems like it really is sort of the concept. And of course, the early screening, even before the pay preview screenings, there were sort of these media screenings in Hong Kong, and, and it got a huge, huge response. And I guess word of mouth really sort of burned through for the last four weeks, and everyone's just sort of telling everyone to go see it. I'm, and, and the word of mouth here has been really, really good. If you look at Facebook and uh, some movie bloggers and things like that, they, they're literally they're praising it to the moon even like more so than the western critics did when they saw it in Cannes. Mm. um i personally thought it's a it's a fine it's okay as a genre exercise it's it doesn't like it's not really a breakthrough in terms of the genre um it's very much like korean <laughs> korean style zombie film and that it's very emotional it's very heavy emotion and yet um the director really pulls off the you know the, the general genre conventions very well but to me it's not like a huge, huge breakthrough, but Hong Kongers are calling it top ten and probably like the best Korean, best zombie film ever and things like that. It, it's, it's, yeah. So I guess it's really about word of mouth, and it's, it's kind of rare that word of mouth really worked that well here in Hong Kong. And does it? I mean, without giving any spoilers because I, I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, does it pretty much stick to typical Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead zombie conventions that we're used to? Is it is it breaking any new ground or dealing with uh, you know because normally in the zombie movie you've got you know it's it's a what do they call it it's a it's a bottle right or, or the, the, when they call that kind of plot people tend to be stuck somewhere in this case they're you know stuck it, it's instead of a mall it's a train you know and they're dealing with that con- sense of confinement and you typically have the guy who ends up being the jerk who cares only about himself you've got you know you've got you've got a subset of certain characters that tend to appear in these movies and then have to deal with each other as well as the whatever kind of zombie horde they're throwing at you right right in, in korea that's sort of what appealed to people i mean every every zombie films are sort of rarely just zombie films, right? At least the good zombie films, they're always about something else. They're always about reflecting sort of society, right? Um, what was it? The Night of the Living Dead was actually about um, racism, right? Right, right, yeah. Right. So so just like, that's why Train to Busan actually resonated with Korean audiences because um, they lived through MERS just last year. They they had the Sewol, um ferry disaster tragedy a couple years ago. So the film actually make, makes references to those and it's about altruism, right? It's about human nature and how humans act in these kind of situations. So so those type of issues actually resonates 
and of course the government cover up and how the government respond or lack thereof that kind of stuff these resonate with korean audiences um so that's why the film worked well in its home base um and uh, you were asking about whether it follows the, the zombie conventions. Um, the zombies here are very much like the 28 Days Later zombies. Yeah. The, where they run. They, the quick they, zombies, yeah. Yeah, they're quick zombies. They run in packs. And in fact, I admired the director for did, not... They don't, did they not do the, the... What was the Brad Pitt thing? The World War Z horde thing that they... They do. Oh, they do. They do. Yeah. They do because so so. What the director is very smart in doing is that he doesn't scare you with jump scares. It's even though it's a contained space and there are zombies everywhere, it is not through jump scares. It's through the images of this horde of zombies coming through a train or a train station, whatever. It it is sheer number. Um, it is sheer that the the scale, right? It, it that's what's sort of terrifying. It's almost like um. That's why you know reference Sewo, right? It's like it's like the water. It's almost like water coming through, drowning you, right? So so um, it, it's a very smart genre film, um, and it does touch a lot of human nature. In that sense, I think it is one of the finer. It is a very very is probably one of the best Asian zombie films, but there's not that many to choose from, um, and yeah, it's gonna be a hard one to top. And um, and so so it's one of those films that I think deserve. Just like my sassy girl really deserve his box office success. Just like mm. this one, I think, would deserve his box office success. Uh, Paul, I, I think you should see it. It's really not that scary. Even I. Oh no, know, I, 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 you know, I plan to get out and see it. I'm, I, I like the zombie genre. Uh, tend to be a fan. Um, well, what's the gore level like? I mean, do they go all out with the uh, sort of um, <clears throat> George Romero, you know, uh, pig guts and stuff like that, or, or are they kind of more held? Um, do they hold back on the gore? They hold back on the gore. I mean, it's a commercial film. They did make it as a big commercial film that's that was meant to, you know, bring in, you know, big audiences. Like, you know, in, in, in Korea, it's already earned 10 million emissions. So it's definitely not a tough film to sit through. It is very thrilling. It's suspenseful. Uh, it's like a rogue, it's like a great, great ride. But um, and it's not, there's nothing sort of really repelling, you know, like mm-hmm. gore or violence. So it, it's, it holds back rather well. I mean, it is, R-rated, but I wouldn't go as far as saying like, oh, it was like Dawn of the Dead R-rated. Right. It's very mid, sort of, it, 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 does, it is pretty restrained in terms of gore. And we were talking a couple weeks back on one of the episodes about the prequel animation. We were speculating, you know, if we'd get a release of that here in Hong Kong, and I think you mentioned it's really going to depend on the numbers. Do you think that likelihood's increased now? I think it has increased. Um, there is already a, a distributor for the film here. Um, it's Echo, so um, yeah, let's see when, it, it, it's a matter of time, the film is so successful that it's a matter of time, it's gonna happen hmm. Alright, sure. excellent We have a bit of news about uh, a blog article and the film Weeds on Fire, which is also coming out this month Yes, Weeds on Fire, well coming out this week, actually um, It's a low budget um, It's the first, one of the first films from the government's first film initiative um, The idea is that the government would as this contest called for some initiative and it is to sort of encourage uh new filmmakers to um by funding their first feature film um weeds on fire was actually chosen from the student category um and um the film was made for a very small budget i think hong kong two million dollars um you know, give me the u.s figure let me let me figure out the u.s figures but anyway um and it was chosen from baptist university they gave him two million dollars hong kong dollars and they made this feature film and um, the word of mouth is in grade. Um, the local distributor um, 
which bought the rights from a from a bidding sort of bidding process with the government. Um, they've done really great job promoting, or as best they can, promoting the film, considering the the the, the competition out there. Um, and the film's already coming out this week uh, with uh, general theatrical release. But a random blog article a, 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 written by an anonymous crew member um, exposed that um, while the stars of the film, including Liu Kai-chi and, and a few of the young leads, uh, got paid, the Baseball Association got paid for their consulting work. Um, and I'm guessing the cinematographer, who is a, 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 the producer, also the producer of the film, got paid. The student crew, the crew that were brought in from, from Baptist University, were not paid. And they're asking, um, well, the article sort of unfairly criticizes the director because, because the, the director is going out and talking about how these people, so these crew um, um, did it out of you know loyalty or, or as a favor or out of their heart, their love for local cinema. Um, meanwhile, he's talking about how you know in, while making the film, his girlfriend broke up with him because you know he because he was so devoted to the film and all that stuff. And, but the criticism essentially goes, why didn't the director pay? Why didn't the director didn't even give like a single free movie ticket to the crew who worked who you know worked give their blood and tears for the blood and sweat for this film for no money. Um, and it sort of brings up a, a sort of bigger issue, I think. Um, this is not the first time this has happened, right? Um, it is true that students or younger film people, young people in the film industry are sort of brought on and they're dragged into these productions. They're probably, they get bring into big productions and, you know, so big that you can't say no. And they're told um, it's for, it's a learning experience. Or, you know, just like an internship. So we, we can't afford it, but you, you get paid in experience, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think that is BS. Um, I think that uh, it, creates, it, so it creates a bad environment, uh, a bad industry, uh, a very bad cycle. And if, in fact, it sort of makes it one of the blog, the blogger writes that it's sort of now Baptist University students are known for being able to work for free. Now they're going to be taken advantage of out there um, by older directors who want younger crew members uh, who can't afford to pay, you know, professional crew members. So they just bring in these Baptist University students and not pay them. Um, part of the problem is essentially what, how the government, the government's attitude towards the, what we call a student group in this competition, right? The professional group in the, in the first film initiative got $5 million Hong Kong dollars as a budget because they're so-called quote-unquote professional. Like the guy, the director of that film was recommended by the professional unions in in Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong cinema. While while the uh, student group was given only two million. So why is it that just because you got these young people working, therefore they should be paid given less money? They're making the same product. The film is ninety minutes, right? Um, uh, the script is a script. It's it's not so. So why is it that even the government sort of has this idea that? It's just their students, so therefore, they should get less money or they should be working for free. What is this mentality that tells us that young people don't deserve the money to make a film? I mean, it's a first film initiative, which means the director has not made a film in either of the groups. So they're coming from the same sort of experience in a way. Yes, the, the younger director may still be a student and the professional guy may have worked in some other post. But the idea is that why not have a play, level p playing field? Um why is it that the students have to work for free and the professional group has to get paid? Shouldn't anyone who work on a film that essentially is out for making money, the, the money is going to go to 
the distributor is going to go back to the government, the profit. It is going to be playing in a, a, a 30 screen release this week. It's going to make millions and millions of Hong Kong dollars. So why can't we treat the crew who work on this film like professionals who worked on a professional film, which it is, um, and give them a fair professional wage? Not even, okay, let's, even, even if they underpaid them, let's say they pay them lower. They pay them like half of what's usual, the usual wage. That's fine because it is a, it is a, it represents, there's a certain respect for professionalism or for the work that these students are showing. Um, and as a, as a, as a, I, I'm a graduate of Baptist film, uh, film uh, Baptist film school. And I've heard about, you know, uh, my classmates who were brought on to write scripts um, for certain, certain uh, producer. They finish a script, the guy puts his name on it and, and passes it off as his own. You know, it's that kind of crap that happens in the Hong Kong film industry. And that's why the Hong Kong, it's, it's just all these sort of bad, bad, you know, habits that happen in the Hong Kong film industry that sort of make people, people can't make a living in Hong Kong anymore. That's why they keep running to China. It's because these, these, these bosses, these producers, these directors, these people just keep taking advantage of people who have no experience. And, and, you know, I'm going to write blog posts about this anyway. I'll, I'll go sort of deeper. So this is kind of my rant. But, Paul, I mean, uh, what do you think? You work sort of work in the educational field, right? Um, uh, so, so I don't know. How do you feel about students, you know, working on film sets? Should they get paid? Um, it's experience I think, a currency. I, I think if you are offering them a, a position that has a title and the title is not intern and they're not, you know, they're doing more than fetching you coffee – then yes, absolutely, they should get paid. It's a it's a job, you know. Um, I but this is not just indicative of student films. This is indicative, like you said, of the industry. I've I've had direct experience with this. My wife has had some direct experience of this, where people just don't want to pay. They just want to, you know. It, it's this idea that. You know, oh, you come and you help me and you'll get some experience and then you can put that on re your resume and get a paying job next time. Right. Um, and and this is this is the idea. But, you know, that attitude just makes the hole get deeper. Right. Because now the next time, you know, oh, that person worked for free before they can work for free again. And maybe this time I'll bring in two people to work for free because there's always somebody you know, who has that sort of starry-eyed glaze, you know, that says, oh, I'm going to work in the movies, you know, and I'm, I'm willing to suck it up now and, and do what I need to do to get my big break. And so you go in and you do that, and then you realize, well, this guy's not going to take me under his wing. He just, you know, used me as a one-off. And then the next thing you know, you know, there's somebody right behind you, right, willing to come in and, and do that same thing. And the industry knows this. So this is why... Um, this is why this happens. And especially I, I, I've heard stories with people who've, you know, had successful films, who've written successful scripts, who have a difficult time making it a career because the industry just doesn't want to pay writers. It just doesn't, you know, it, it, it's like the, the people that it's willing to pay are the uh, people who are in front of the camera and the director, right? And all the money needs to filter to, to those points. And it's pretty much, you know, this is the same kind of stuff. We, we could go into a deeper discussion. This is indicative of other things like, you know, the government and, and, and other ways, business practices, right? You, 
you tighten down the clamps on the lower end of things so that more money can continue to flow upwards, right? It's it's an economic model that's been used in multiple industries over the past, you know, two decades or so. And, you know, it just squeezes the lifeblood out of people down at the bottom to the point to where this kind of stuff happens. And as a student, you know, my advice is, well, you know, for these students, okay, you got some experience, you learn something, don't let it happen again. Somebody offers you a spot, you say, you pay me, or, you know, you don't get me, I'll go do something else. And it's a sad state of affairs when you have to operate on that level, but really you don't have much alternative. What I, what I tell my students is, if you're considering working for somebody for free to get experience, why not work for yourself? Right. Um, don't, 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 don't go work on somebody else's project. Make your own project if you're going to work for free. You, it might not be successful, but you're not going to make money for somebody else. You know, you might just make some money for yourself. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, what I've done in my, what I've learned in my field is that um, um, when I first uh, get a job with a certain company, when I put up that price, sometimes I, when I first started, I would think, oh, you know, it's the first time I worked in that company. I'm going to give them a lower price as to sort of, uh, uh, um, it's like a discount, right? It's like a, it's like a first time discount. It doesn't work like that because when I try to charge them higher again later, one I have one company never call me again when I ask for a raise. Um, I've had another complain to me, yeah, but that's not what you charged last time. That's how it works. You have to give them a. It's, it's, it, there is no sort of foot. There is no what's the word? It's not from the door, but it's the opposite. Yeah. It's like slowly they, get. It's not the slowly get get more money phenomenon. It's you have to. Yeah. You have to do rate put up your highest price possible phenomenon where you negotiate the highest price you can think of at least within a reasonable range, and then you test what they have to budget for, and then that's what they're going to pay you. And and people who work in any creative industry have have dealt with this. I know designers, um, people who are artists, people who do copywriting. You know, they all deal with this. And there's in the states they have a handbook. You know that is is. is <laughs> If you're a creative person, a um, you know a graphic designer or something, they have these handbooks that come out every year that give you guidelines for you know the kind of service you're doing and, and what's the going rate for for charging, and you have some flexibility, like you said, to work you know within that rate if you're a freelancer and working for yourself, but you're not supposed to like grossly undercut things, and at the same time you're probably not going to get more than a going rate unless you're one of the top guys pretty much right but part of the problem is is that we have things like what is it fiverr is that the name of the the app do you know what i'm talking about well like where you can you know they, they've got these apps and these sites now where you can just go and pay somebody like five bucks to do you know a page of writing or or to do you know something and and so there's a lot of you know, sort of cheaper alternatives. You can get somebody to design a logo. I see these ads on Facebook all the time, like, we'll design your logo, you know, for like 10 bucks or something. And I'm sure they're not going to do a super detailed job and you probably won't have a lot of flexibility with what they're going to give you. But at the same time, they're not going to charge you, uh, you know, a super corporate rate like a gra regular graphic designer might do. So uh, creative industries are, are you know, it, it's a tough market these days because... Uh, you know, they've got all these different channels and everybody's looking for a shot, looking for a way to get their foot in the door, especially in the film industry. So they are going to take advantage of it if they can. And they do. 
So, so that's I guess this is, a, this is a sort of throwing out caution to people who are thinking, you know, Hong Kong film industry or a glamorous place or, or the film industry in general. What a what a glamorous place. No, the creative industry actually. If you, um, as far as I know, uh, professional free uh, professional translators um, get paid way more than doing the same sort of professional translating in the film industry, just because you know budget, blah blah. But yeah, um, it is not a glamorous place. It is it is a business, and it is a business where. Like you said, money goes upwards and never comes downwards. Yeah. All right. Um, one of the things we might just throw a quick mention out of some gossipy news. We did. We were going to talk about it last time, and we forgot. Uh, if you follow celebrity gossip, you may have heard the sad, sad story of actor Wong Bao Chang, right? Um, movies like... Uh, uh, Kung Fu Jungle, right? Uh, what else, Kevin? He was in... Uh, um, I Love Wing Chun. Oh, God, no one knows <laughs> I Love Wing Chun. Uh, he was in Blind Shaft. He was in World About Thieves. He was mm-hmm. in um, the Jia Ke film, um, um, Touch Zee. of Sin. Yeah. Um, he was he lost in Thailand. Lost in Thailand, yeah. Lost in Thailand, there you go. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he's probably known to some uh, cinema Chinese cinema film watchers. Uh, the big story is that uh, he's divorcing his wife. It's been all this sort of public thing on social media, and his wife apparently had an affair, I guess, with his agent. You know, and I'm think I, we had a discussion one. I'm thinking, really, you're married to the super successful actor, and you're going to have an affair with his agent? That doesn't seem. It just doesn't seem to to be sensible. But the agent, I guess, is pretty tall and better looking. I've seen the video, man. So I've seen the video, but I'm. Uh, but I won't tell you where to find it. But you, I've you, seen you've the seen video. you've seen the the dirty the naked time video. I saw the video. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, well, anyway, I don't necessarily want to see the video, but it's sad to say that uh, yeah, this is kind of being aired out in the public. And Wang Baochang is seen as a pretty pleasant and mild and reserved guy. Although I'm, if I'm the agent and I'm thinking, you know, this guy knows his kung fu, I probably don't want to make him mad. Um, so I don't know, but it's a, it's a sad situation all around because they do have kids together and, um, you know, uh, kids and divorce and just not a good thing, but, uh, there you have it. You can do some searching on sites like the, you know, Shanghaiist and stuff, and they've got, uh, plenty of articles as, uh, this goes forward. So there's a bit of celebrity gossip update for the week. Why don't we take a short break and we'll come back to talk about some more important things like our film review for this week with Benny Chan's Call of Heroes. Welcome back. Our film this week, Call of Heroes, from director Benny Chan. This film has a pretty big cast. We've got um, Sean Lau, or Lau Ching Wan, as we know him here in Hong Kong. Uh, Eddie Peng also is here, uh, rounding out the cast. Uh, We've got some other people like Liu Kai Chi. And of course, got to be in every film, right? Louis (laughs) Ku, once again, uh, making an appearance. Um, so the story is set during China's warlord era. So for those who are not up on their history, and if you haven't watched 
a lot of films in the past decade, uh, since a lot of the films are set in this era. Um, this is the period during the fall of the Qing Dynasty before um, the rise of sort of the communist period when things were unstable and you had various powerful warlords with sort of their own personal armies, uh, you know, taking control of different provinces of China. So uh, during this period, the warlord period, um, you have one such warlord and he has a son named Cho Siulan. He is the um, played by Louis Ku, and he enters the town of Puchang, and in doing so, he kills two people and a child. He is promptly arrested and faces an impending death sentence by the local lawkeeper, Young Haknan, played by Lao Ching Wan. And, but this prompts fear of retaliation from his warlord father, whose army is on a path of regional conquest. So lawkeeper Young is faced with the predicament of upholding the law or placating the fears of the townsfolk and releasing this psychopathic killer. And yes, Wu Jing and Eddie Peng show up too. So that's the synopsis, uh, as it were. Um, for those familiar with Westerns, and this film does take on a very Western feel, the soundtrack has a very Western feel to it, even though it's set in this warlord uh, Republican-esque period of China. Uh, this is very much a not a direct remake, but it's pretty much in the same vein as the John Wayne film, Rio Bravo. So if you're familiar with that film, basic same idea. John Wayne's the sheriff. He captures a outlaw, and the outlaw is like the brother, I think, of a big gang, you know, leader. And the gang leader is going to come to town and, and bust his brother out of jail before they can hang him uh, the next day. So basic same kind of plot here, but it works, and I think it works pretty well. The film does have some special effects issues. Um, there are some places where the effects just aren't working. They just maybe didn't have the budget that they needed um, to make it as clean as it could have been. But overall, I think the deficits in the effects are overshadowed, uh, overshadowed by some good performances and some really good action with action choreography done by Samuel Hung, who makes a very brief cameo in the film as well. We also, as I said, have Liu Kai-Chi here to overact the heck out of uh, a couple scenes. And it's always good to see him on the screen. But really what this comes down to is sort of the dynamic between Louis Ku and his sort of over-the-top cackling, I'm a psycho and there's nothing you can do about it performance, and Lao Ching Wan is the very sort of grounded and virtuous uh, lawkeeper in, in this town. They refer to him in the subtitles as the sheriff. <laughs> and technically, I guess, you know, again, as a sort of Rio Bravo kind of uh, contextual reference, that's true. But he wouldn't have been really a sheriff. I mean, I think lawkeeper is perhaps a better description. Um, I shot the sheriff. Yeah, indeed. That, that's what Louis Ku wanted to do. Um <laughs> So, yes, as I mentioned, you do have Eddie Peng here uh, playing sort of a wandering guy, a hermit, uh, uh, and basically he just goes wherever his horse leads him. He kind of blindfolds himself, and um, he, he kind of plays the sort of uh, slovenly drunkard kung fu, although he's not really drunk all the time, but, you know, he's really good at martial arts, but uh, he's kind of unkempt, doesn't shave, and he's a he's a, a bright spot in the film, and I and I will say this: they the, there are some scenes where kids refer to him as uh, uh, as the Monkey King, right? Some Hung, and I think that after seeing 
his role here, if Aaron does, Aaron Kwok does decide not to do any more Monkey King films, Eddie Ping would be a pretty good choice. I mean, he, with the beard and everything, I think the mannerisms and the, some of the fighting style they had him using, uh, I think he could pull it off uh, and pull it off quite well. So he's a he's a bright spot in the film, and he's got some of the more uh, funnier interactions, we'll say, um, whereas Sean Lau tends to be, you know, sort of the, the, the straight man as it were. So basically this becomes um, kind of this contest of wills between um, Lu, uh, Lao Ching-Wan, Louis Ku, and you have Eddie Pang who comes in. He really doesn't want to take sides at first, but uh, ultimately I think he's a, I think he's like the Dean Martin character, if I remember correctly. Um, kind of, you know, similar. He ends up on a side. And then you also have uh, Wu Jing, who's, um, he, he's got sort of a history with uh, the Eddie Peng character, but really he's serving as sort of the commander-in-chief for the warlord in question, uh, Louis Ku's father. And he's there to basically just get him, get uh, Louis Ku's character out um, through any means necessary. <clears throat> so it's basically this plot that plays out over the course of, I'd say, 24 to 48 hours, really. Um, and it works, again, pretty well. Got some FX issues, but I think primarily I was impressed by the dynamics of the characters, <coughs> even though a little bit of overacting on the case of Louis Ku and a lot of overacting on the case of, of Luke Aichi. Um, but I was entertained, and it was a big cast, and um, it was, I think, probably one of my favorite films of, of the summer so far. Um, it's a film that, you know, usually I gauge films by how quickly I want to see it again, and I kind of want to see it again. So I enjoyed it, and I'd say that if you like you know, martial arts films, and you, you know, we do get a lot set in this period, but I think this is a bit more on the sort of epic fantasy-ish kind of scale. I mean, they do, it, the, the martial arts themselves, you know, they're not shooting Hadouken fireballs or anything, but um, they do a little bit of wire work in places, and, you know, so that it does get into some fanciful territory, but um, it's it's very stylistically done, and and I kind of liked it um, overall. Lao Ching Wan's character uses a whip, uh, which I think is a interesting choice. Um, not truly indicative of Indiana Jones. He's a little bit more creative with the usage, and uh, I think that worked equally well. And some just some interesting fight scenes overall. Kevin, let me throw it over to you. What was your take on Call of Heroes? Oh, I mean, easily better than White Storm. Actually, I think, mm -hmm. um, and I kind of, you know, the thing is, Benny Chan is not a very particularly deep filmmaker. He doesn't really make deep films, and you don't really never expect very deep, you know, storytelling of his films. He's a great commercial filmmaker. He's a great entertainment sort of filmmaker, and when he tries to sort of do more than that, it sort of goes gets out of hand. You know, I'm talking about like Divergence, right? Um, so here he's just doing a very cool sort of genre film, and it's a it's a treat is a it's a western. Obviously, it's a yeah. tribute to westerns. Um, and the thing is, I think it's one of his more meaningful films because he, he finally figured out he can put in messages uh, of films or, or, or messages they want to put in, but yet still make a very you know successful uh, commercial film. Yeah. Um, and that's what he's done here. You know, there's there are political sort of implication or uh, in this film. You know, essentially, you take the city as Hong Kong, and you have this divide against people who just sort of want to so-called live a peaceful life and bow down to sort of these these big powers. 
these um, very strong powers, and and there are people who want to uphold justice and blah blah and uphold their you know what they believe in, and it's a very Hong Kong message. That's a very Hong Kong Hong, Hong Kong value. Yeah. Um, and in a way, I think that's really interesting that Benny Chan used this story to sort of do that. And even if you don't know, don't think about it. You think beyond that, it's 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 just a fun genre film. It has flaws, you know. There are too much sort of preaching. There's uh, too much overacting. It's almost like it's almost like uh, uh, um, Ku is making a thesis to the to the uh, Liu Kaichi Graduate School of Overacting. It is the movie is the graduate thesis of that call it that that school, um, and everyone's sort of losing it and the script is not perfect but it is fun and like you said it, go, it gets really dark though I have to say it does get really dark but um, I actually found most of the action to be really good except the final showdown where you have you know all hell breaking loose that was a bit dis- disappointing actually um, but other than that the film is entertaining it's, it's, it's a big sort of spectacle and it doesn't feel China. It's it's just made from the hands of a very professional um, uh, craftsman, and that's fine. Um, I wouldn't go as far to say it's a great film. It's good. It's fun, and I think action fans will love it. Yeah, it it does recall a couple things. I mean, um, because of the time period and because there's a certain rivalry that's present, it did sort of recall his earlier film Shaolin from a few years back, Um, but also the uh, the female actress here, Yuan Chan, who plays Lao Qingwan's wife, uh, she's also they they portray her as quite good with martial arts too, although something happens and and so we don't get to see a lot of her, uh, you know, sort of kicking butt. But the 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 ideas there and for a little bit it was very reminiscent for me. There the two of them together was a bit reminiscent of. Uh, the husband-wife couple from Iron Monkey, right, from way back when. Um, I got a little bit of, of that kind of vibe going on, and I, I really liked that. I, I kind of wanted to see more of that, but then, you know, this, again, something happens that sort of impedes that a, a little bit. But, yeah, overall, I you know, it I think it, it does what it needs to do. I enjoyed the soundtrack. I mean, again, the soundtrack is very much uh, referencing Westerns as well, but I think even though... This is this period has often been used as sort of a, a parallel for the Western genre in China. Um, I think it, you know, it, it still it fits very well, and this doesn't just seem like it, you know, a carbon copy of Rio Bravo. It doesn't seem like he just saw it and said, "I want to remake that," in with a you know a, sort of a China image on it, um, because I think he goes a little bit further and he goes in different directions with the characterizations. So basically, it's just this, you know, this idea of this setup. You know, you've got this guy, and he's got this very powerful relationship, and you know, then it becomes more about the characters playing off each other. And I think they go in some different places than perhaps uh, Rio Bravo did back in the day. So yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, definitely uh, give this a shot uh, if you have a chance to get out and see it. Um, I do agree with Kevin that the final scene. The final fight scene, one of for for me the 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 worst part I think was they decide to have this sort of battle on the top of a bunch of like pots or urns. Yeah, like and, like yeah urns or yeah, yeah like know, wine 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 jugs wine, or urns wine jugs or something. Yeah, and jugs. 
you know, so, okay, it's the idea that this is perhaps the big trade industry of, of this township or this village, and that's fine, but then pretty much all of it is just done in CG, and it just doesn't look very well, the, you know, the, the, the way they show some of them falling and some of the animated physics and things, and then there's a big kind of moment that happens, and it just it just doesn't look good. You know, they could have maybe taken that little bit out and it would have been a big improvement for the film. But it, well, again, that's, that, that's it's nothing that kills the film for me. I mean, it doesn't totally ruin the film for me. It's just a single scene. Well, that's like the, uh, the, the script of the, or the rule of script writing, right? You pull a gun out in the first act, you have to fire it in the third act. So you put, er, you put a jug out in the first act, you better use it in the third act. Yeah. A, a mountain, a literal mountain of jugs, right? Um, so yeah, so give it a look and watch uh, Louis Ku and Lu Pachi overact their hearts out. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily from the LoveHK film.com site and the Hong Kong movie database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. And if you would like to be part of the show, of course, you can always write in. And we did get some uh, some mail. We have a, a mail from a, a guy. Um, he said it's okay to say his name and where he's from, his first name, that is. Uh, so it's Peter from uh, Edmonton in uh, the great country of Canada, or America's hat, as some people will call it. Um, and he wrote in a, a letter and just, you know, said he enjoyed the show um, and talked about a couple movies that he had seen. He did make specific mention of a couple things. He said he did see League of Gods and was not too impressed with that. Um, and I think probably he's more in the Kevin camp on that one. He also said he saw the Mandarin remake of My Best Friend's Wedding, which I think we're actually getting this week, although with limited screenings, and that is a... Basically a remake of the Julia Roberts film, right? It was a Julia right. Roberts film, but this time That's starring Shu right. uh, Chi. So I'm kind of excited to try and get out and see that because I do like seeing her whenever possible. Um, and he said, he says it, he thinks it's well worth seeing and just for her performance alone. So I'm kind of excited about going out and seeing that. And he talks about a couple of other films that he got a chance to see, things like the Korean film um, Operation Chromite, among some other things. And... Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I don't want to read his enti- the entirety of his email, but I was mostly taken by his praise for my best friend's wedding, and that's kind of really gotten me excited to go out and see that. So, thanks again, Peter, for writing in and uh, you know sharing your thoughts with us. And if you are out there and you would like to be a part of the show too, you're welcome to write in and you know share your thoughts. You're welcome to write into us too if you don't want us to say anything here. You know, you can just you know send us a message and say. This is just an email. I don't you know, want you to read it or anything. Um, and, you know, we'll be happy to hear from you. Things you like, things you don't like. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us through our website at concast.com or on Twitter. We have a presence there. So follow us along at twitter.com slash concast. You can email us uh, at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can check us out on Facebook with East S West S. So, again, big thanks to Peter for reaching out and, and contacting us and for Anybody else, you know, who does write in on occasion 
And if I've forgotten to mention anybody at any point because I'm an airhead and, you know, things come and go out of my brain so easily um, that I don't even know what's happening half the time. So I do apologize if you wrote in and I didn't make mention of you. Some people have written in and said, please don't make mention, and I've tried to avoid doing that. So, um, But, you know, thanks for all of you listeners for always being out there and, uh, you know, just following along and listen to us ramble about movies, right? Do urge you to follow, though, uh, Mr. Kevin Ma and all the things that he's doing, whether he's uh, blogging or he's uh, writing in magazines and all that good stuff. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? Hey, um, yeah, I write monthly for the uh, Discovery Magazine for Cathay Pacific Airways and also uh, Silk Road Magazine on uh, Cathay Dragon. Uh, you can also download the Discovery app. Uh, on your iPad iTunes store or iPad app store. Uh, the September issue should be out by the time this goes on the air. This month, I write about the film uh, Love and Friendship based on the Jane Austen novella, uh, Lady Susan. Um, I also write a few Hong Kong and Asian TV reviews and uh, edited the movie listing. So um, mainly the articles. Check out the articles. Just like Playboy. Read it for the articles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, anyway, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the Golden Rock. That's one word at the Golden Rock. Um, you can also email me at uh, the Golden Rock at gmail.com. And like Paul said, if you want to write something nice, some comments about the show, you can tell me I suck. If you want to tell me I suck, please write to uh, what is it, Comcast or whatever the <laughs> whatever website yeah, you have. Screen no, at gmail. Screen at gmail. Yeah, don't send it to me. Um, but if you have something that's not for broadcast, just write you know not for broadcast, and and we love to hear your thoughts uh, about the show. And um, um, yeah, that yeah. that's it. That's it. That's it. And like like you said, you know, read the Discovery magazine for the articles because if not, you've got to do that. You know, pull out of the A three eighty, right? And nobody wants to see that because it's, you know, just plain tech. I'm being ridiculous, right? Uh, <laughs> next show, episode two hundred and five, we're going to be talking about uh, an East Green film, but not a Hong Kong film. We're going back over to Japan for Godzilla Resurgence. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to do this for a podcast for a long time. Mm-hmm. What did you see, old man? Godzilla! 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 <laughs> Sir, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, it's my guilty pleasure to Ronan Emmerich version. All right. Well, at least somebody's got a guilty pleasure for that. I certainly don't. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about Godzilla Resurgence and all the spectacular glory as Big G returns back to Japan. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying... And we'll see you next time. Gojira! Gojira! No, see you next week, everybody. Sweet.